This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning hour of chit-chat with the doctors. Now we are down to a bit of a skeleton crew today. Um, it might surprise you, but doctors get sick as well. So our poor lolly doc has been struck down. But you do have myself, Miss Medic, and Malice here to keep you entertained and educated throughout the hour. Malice, good morning. Good morning. This should be not doctors, but just doctor. <laughs> well, I well. mean, obviously panellists, <laughs> but uh, anchor, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But look, we'll still have lots to chat about because it has been Absolutely. a big week in medicine and a big week in sport for you, Malice. Oh, look, and first, happy new year to all the listeners. This is our first show. Yeah. Now, it's known over the years that I barrack for a certain team and I just found out that you barrack for another certain team, <laughs> which right. both played on Friday night night mm. we won't mention names uh and it was a glorious comeback by your team in the third quarter but then my team pipped in the last minute but this is not about football no okay this is about the captain of my team one called jared roughhead who actually had the most serious of conditions which was a recurrent melanoma with secondaries mm. and he received this revolutionary treatment which is called immunosuppressant where the body's immune system is stimulated to fight the cancer cells rather than major surgical and uh, hormone or X-ray radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And what the predictions were when he went through this radical treatment was that he would be out for the best part of last year and maybe if the remission occurred, he might have a chance towards the end of 2017. And lo and behold, modern medicine is miraculous, not to take away from Jared's own incredible courage and the team's support. He had the remission. They decided that he could start training towards the latter part of last year. Then they gave him the captaincy of the team. And on Friday night, he played the full four quarters as captain. It's extraordinary because metastatic, metastatic melanoma is not uh, it is not something that you want to happen. It is mm. very serious, but there has been a change in the way that this can be treated, and he's a very good example of just what is the potential for this new treatment. Well, this potential now is actually a lived reality, and we just wish him continued good health. And I think all sports people, this is not a partisan of which team he belongs to. This is above and beyond. It transcends sport. It's the human courage of the medical fraternity himself, obviously, and his family and the uh, sporting club that supports him. Good luck to him and to all those who are recovering from like serious illnesses. Absolutely. Mm. Now, radiotherapy last week set lots of interest sparking and, gosh, we really had our finger on the pulse because uh, what was talked about last week, which was a fascinating discussion regarding personality disorders and a certain world leader, (laughs) it is actually also similar sort of themes have been coming up in international press. So we thought we'd do a little bit of a follow-up regarding that. Malice, do you want to kick this off? Well, firstly, a thank you to Dr McZiff last week, who certainly, as the doctor, had the pulse on the news. And he saw the rapid palpitations going around the world. (laughs) 
and was in there first off with a, a very, very beautifully crafted segment which really balanced a, a fine line of ethics of what as psychiatrists and mental health professionals we are and we are not ethically allowed to do. And one of the uh, follow-ups has been a spate of articles and letters in the New York Times this week. I may say not in direct response to McZiff because <laughs> well, in America... we don't know. They may be well, listening to us, you know, radiotherapy on demand. <laughs> you actually, we should yeah, keep an open mind because <laughs> it was an unusual week in New York mm. and... Um, Perhaps, McZiff, if you're listening, we'd like to hear what your connections are. But anyhow, <laughs> the incredible uh, contribution by a fellow who's called Professor Alan Francis is no ordinary psychiatrist. He actually is the one who defined narcissistic personality disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Now, he writes in New York Times this week under the title of an eminent psychiatrist demures on Trump's mental state. Now, I ran this past McZiff, and it was his suggestion, which I will heartily follow. It's a brief letter just to read this out, to hear the nuances that are going on from the actual originator of this diagnostic category. And the letter goes as follows. To the editor, fevered media speculation about Donald Trump's psychological motivations and psychiatric diagnosis has recently encouraged mental health professionals to disregard the usual ethical constraints against diagnosing public figures at a distance. They have sponsored several petitions and a February 14th letter, so that's earlier in the week, to the New York Times suggesting that Mr Trump is incapable on psychiatric grounds of serving as president. Most amateur diag diagnosticians have mislabeled President Trump with the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. I wrote the criteria that define this disorder, and Mr. Trump doesn't meet them, does not meet them. He may be a world-class narcissist, but this does not make him mentally ill because he does not suffer from the distress and impairment required to diagnose mental disorder. He goes on to say, Mr. Trump causes severe distress rather than experiencing it and has been richly rewarded rather than punished for his grandiosity, self-absorption and lack of empathy. It is a stigmatising insult to the mentally ill who are mostly well-behaved and well-meaning to be lumped with Mr. Trump, who is neither. Bad behaviour is rarely a sign of mental illness and the mentally ill behave badly only rarely. Psychiatric name-calling is a misguided way of countering Mr. Trump's attack on democracy. He can and should be appropriately denounced for his ignorance, incompetence, impulsivity and pursuit of dictatorial powers. His psychological motivations are too obvious to be interesting and analysing them will not halt his headlong power grab. The antidote to a dystopic Trumpian dark age is political, not psychological. 
signed Alan Francis, Coronado, California, and he's Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Duke University Medical College and was, and this is the important part, the chairman of the task force that wrote the DSM for disorder. How interesting. Now, this is straight from the horse's mouth. Mm. However, if you read this carefully, he himself commits the cardinal offence which he says you shouldn't do. That is to comment at a distance, and he does it in the negative. He says the criteria that define this order, Mr Trump doesn't meet them. So he has diagnosed him. He has actually (laughs) done a diagnosis of exclusion after declaring that you shouldn't do a positive diagnosis, which is the most extraordinary uh, faux pas, let's say. I'm sure it's not intentional, but it is a breach of the ethics. So it comes back to where do we get our ethics from? Mm. Now, those of us who remember, and I was still a medical student then in 1964, there was a fellow called Barry Goldwater, and he ran as a Republican in the presidential election, and there was a great hoo-ha about his personality, and he was analysed as an anal character and a few other things. At that time, psychoanalysis was the language to be talking on rather than DSM. This was reported in a magazine that is now defunct by the appropriately named title of Fact. (laughs) He sued Fact and won $73,000 for his efforts. And a decade or so later, in the early 70s, the American Psychiatric Association decided to draw up ethical guidelines, which became known as the Goldwater Guidelines. Mm -hmm. Now, the Goldwater Rule says that it is unethical for any psychiatrist to diagnose a public figure on a couple of conditions. And the two conditions that you must fulfill to be an ethical psychiatrist or mental health professional is first, or this is unless he or she, the doctor, has conducted an examination. And we'll come to that, what is an examination in the modern age of social sort of media. But conduct an examination. Secondly, and this is the sting, has been granted proper authorization for such a statement to be disclosed. Now, I ask you, if you're going to diagnose someone with a serious disorder in public office, they're going to give you a written signature saying, yes, please tell this to the media. Come on. Now, this is the argument that most people now in the States are questioning, that in the age of social media, we have direct evidence of certainly tweets that are directly from the man, from uh, YouTube and newspaper reports and pictures and so on. The question is, is this reality? Mm. Is that enough evidence to constitute an examination? And it it is certainly not. Mm. This is called the persona And we all know that a great politician has to be deceptive. It's an oxymoron to have a truthful politician. They'd be out of business. You can't tell the truth in politics. And it's the one who does the deception with greater class is the most successful. But is Trump deceiving? Now, leaving aside his deception, he is certainly got a a persona that comes across with grandiosity, impulsivity, hypersensitivity and so on. But as the other article, which is from a current psychiatrist, uh, Richard Friedman from Cornell, in today's article, actually I've got the electronic version from two days, but the print version of New York Times today is about diagnosing the president. And he goes on to say, having issues of grandiosity, impulsivity, hypersensitivity and so on does not necessarily constitute narcissism 
What about other sets of clinical problems like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, like abuse of drugs, alcohol and stimulants? What about variants of bipolar? None of which we could know from any social media. Mm -hmm. And so we really do have to step back in this debate as professionals and not degrade ourselves. And here are the five problems that Professor uh, Friedman can highlight. One is that the professional knowledge is used as a political weapon. Now, we're not in the business of being recruited by political parties. If you want to be a real psychiatrist, then at least offer to diagnose both parties. Be bipartisan. Otherwise, it might expose you as a professional to bias. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it is intellectually suspect to go on data sets that are insufficient. And again, unless we as professionals interview someone, we don't have the data because so much of it comes through in the actual relationship as you sit in the consulting room and often over many weeks. So that's the second point. Third is to call for his incompetence on the grounds of mental illness is a furphy. There are many professionals who have psychiatric treatment and continue to function with great competence in public office. And historically, something like half the presidents on historical documents can be diagnosed as possibly having some illness. And about four or five were known actually to be suffering illnesses, not dementia or those that incapacitate, but other psychiatric illnesses in office. Now, the fitness to serve is a real important one. The final two, one is if you diagnose someone with a mental illness, you could left them off on a moral hook. You're not responsible. That, that's, that's the most incredible catch-22. And finally, we as a profession have to look at our own sense of bias. And we are certainly affected by politics and we mustn't allow our political bias to interfere with our professional knowledge. So it's hopefully a theme that will be discussed further on and our thanks to McZiff for last week for introducing it. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Look, it was I'm sure we're going to hear lots more about this over what we've got four years. Um, <laughs> unless he gets impeached. Unless unless that happens. Yeah. Uh, look, another thing that was big in the in the news while we sort of wrap up what's going on in the news in medicine this week was the Four Corners uh, episode that aired on Monday night regarding complementary medicines. So we might just have a quick chat about that. Um, so this is not a new topic to our little radiotherapy show Uh the, I think it was last, maybe October, I might have spoken yes. about this when we talked about that there really is a huge lack of evidence to back up the use of most complementary medicines. Um, and I think this is something that is not immediately obvious if you were to walk into a pharmacy in the community nowadays. And this is what was brought up in this Four Corners episode. And it wasn't even obvious to Dr Autonomy because her eyebrows went through the ceiling when you <laughs> described the lack of evidence for all the things that's that we've right. all been taking. That's it. That's <laughs> right. And uh, so, and I guess this is what really came up in this Four Corners episode that 
there is because there is so much complementary medicine now available in our community pharmacies and there has been a real change in our community pharmacies that you know the ones i'm talking about the big ones with the aisle upon aisle of vitamins and supplements they offer discount prices on their prescriptions this, this drastic change has is really causing a uh, a problem in terms mm. of how much legitimacy these complementary medicines are being given by the fact that they are alongside the dispensary which contains you know all the medications that have had um lots of testing to show that they are uh, that they do do what they say they're going to do so can i just ask when you question the legitimacy mm. does that mean that Obviously, the other word is illegitimate. That's well. I now, guess what, are we going that far? Well, I guess what we're saying, um, what I'm saying, is that the the evidence is for most in most situations. There are a few specific circumstances where supplements are important, such as the use of folate in pregnancy, mm. or when there is a specific de- deficiency diagnosed. But in the vast majority of cases, for the average person, all that these uh, vitamins and supplements are doing is making their urine very expensive. That that is a catchphrase I've heard. What That's, what does that mean? Means that much of this these these things that are taken into the body as an extra on top of the diet that we are all taking in is just simply excreted by the kidneys. So it makes your your urine full of these vitamins oh, right. and uh and therefore very expensive these things are not cheap these mm. these are vitamins and supplements but, but the, the implication is it doesn't get absorbed into your body and get used by the body it just goes in one end out the other exactly wow exactly and even if there is some absorption there's no evidence well there in many of the situations there's no evidence that benefit comes from that um, and also, there is also the risk of harm, which is something that I think mm. goes unrecognised because people make the assumption these are natural products. Yes. So, you look, it may not work, but surely it couldn't hurt. Well, that's not necessarily true. That these Some of these um, vitamins and supplements have been shown to do real harm. Um, but so, look, we've talked about all of that in the past, but I mm. think it's this link with the pharmacy and the changing face of community pharmacy that I find most interesting. So pharmacists are always mentioned as being up there in terms of what who the community look to as being medical professionals that they can rely on. And, look, there are so, I don't want to, by all means, tar all pharmacists with this with the same... Uh, with the same brush, that many pharmacists do such great work. Um, I can think of so many pharmacists that I've worked with along uh, along my career that have been so very helpful. And in fact, the community pharmacist that works next to my uh, gen- general practice, you know, he's, he'll often be on the phone to me to tell me, you know, that one of my patients might not be taking all of her blood pressure medications because she's not coming in to pick up scripts. And all of this stuff is incredibly helpful. I'll second that because also my connection with pharmacy experiences have been just on the positive, usually about could could you please decipher your handwriting? What is it that you (laughs) prescribed? And I thought that's a very gentle reminder that they need to read what you write. Exactly, exactly. But I guess there is this changing face where that... Some pharmacists are making the majority of their income from their their 
what we call the you know their front of shop mm. products and less from the dispensary. And this wasn't the case you know, even 10 years ago where 70% of their income was coming from the dispensary and 30% from, you know, perfumes and hairbrushes and things that sat at the front of the shop. Now we're seeing 70% of the income come from that front of shop and they're able to pass on discounted prices to the community for their for their prescription medication. But that's coming at a cost. And that cost is that there is, they are... There's evidence that, um, and this was this was outlined in the Four Corners episode, that there's this Coke and fries approach, which is a suggesting a sell-on to your mm. prescription medications. That we can, as medical professionals, really question the ethics of that. If you are aware that this this product that you are suggesting as an add-on to the prescription medication is not likely to benefit. Are you really acting in the best interest of the of your patient? Are you then a medical professional first and foremost, or are you a retailer first and foremost? And this boundary is getting very blurred. Now that's a pretty explosive expose, uh, because I mean the last bastion of trust one would hope in this culture of post trust and post truth is still about one's health. Now I hear what you're suggesting is like the medical business boundary so the pharmacy business boundary starting to get blurred so what safeguards will we have what is the guidelines what are the regulations who enforces them where can i as a consumer find out if the recommendation I'm getting from my pharmacist is the real deal? Well, this is a really tricky one. I don't know if we do this particularly well as yet. There has been also an independent um, investigation by Choice that Mm. have also revealed the same sort of thing. They did a sort of silent shopper um, situation that's mentioned in the Four Corners episode as well where some people were sent into pharmacies reporting that they've got they had symptoms of stress and what could the pharmacist recommend and in in like a significant proportion of cases they were recommended homeopathics um very few were told to see a medical professional and it was just it shows just that we've we've really this is getting out of hand and we there needs to be some changes to bring this back so it's it's at this stage a slippery slope that's been validated by choice which is an independent uh, surveyor yeah so is the time here to become socially active in some way, to ask our representatives who's going to do what and when, or how does this work? Well, I think it, it's going to come down to pharmacy themselves, like because there are a lot of oh, there's a lot yeah. of pharmacists that feel strongly yeah. that they don't want to be seen mm. as doing this as being first and foremost retailers, but those pharmacies with the different approach, with this Coke and fries approach, are very powerful. So. Right. I think it's it's very difficult. And, look, I think I take it upon myself as a general practitioner to tell my patients about where right. the evidence is in terms of supplements. And I don't recommend multivitamins. I don't recommend multivitamins, those gummy vitamins and fish oils <laughs> for children. There is no evidence. Um, right. And I think that that's, that's really important. But I think that probably the medical community needs to take a bit more of a stronger stance about... Um, how we are aligned with pharmacy if these practices are going to continue. And hope that the uh, 
pharmacy profession internally has a bit of a look at itself like the medical fraternity should also. Absolutely. And where we draw the boundaries. That's right. Fascinating. But and a, a concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and it is 10.31 in the morning. You're joined by myself, Miss Medic and Dr Mellis. Now, we've been talking about uh, personality disorders, diagnoses and presidents and also complementary medicines and their presence in our community pharmacies. We have had some calls during the break um, of people saying that they... Uh, they they benefit from complementary medicines and supplements that's the case and you're informed about the potential harms and what they the evidence is then by all means continue on your merry way that is i'm not going to suggest that that's not something that you personally would benefit from i'm talking about the kind of more broader statements we can um, make about benefits and where where these substances sit in our pharmacies. Um, so I just hope that that's clear. Now we are going to move on and talk about the DSM-5 and the fallacy of diagnosis in particular when it comes to ADHD. Over to you, Dr Mellis. Now, please, dear listeners, uh, do not switch off when you hear the DSM words again. Uh, I'll try this from a different angle. Imagine that I give you a ruler and you measure the height of your children with this ruler and, you know, you put the little pencil mark against the doorpost and each few months you put the mark a little higher and your child's growing up or children are growing up if you use two or three colours and then you put the ruler next to this doorpost and you come out with uh, how many centimetres or feet and inches your child is. Now, imagine you record that in a children's growing book and when they go, grow up and get married, you pass it on as an heirloom and then they go through generations saying, this is how tall I was when I was five years old and then as a teenager and now I'm six foot. And then someone gives them another ruler and they turn out to be five foot ten. And they say, no, no, my mum measured me and it was six foot and I, I think she is the one I trust. And you should. However, what if I was the one who gave her that ruler and it's not an accurate ruler? <laughs> and she has been doing these measurements for all her life of you as her son and her daughter and... She says, but I, I was told the doctor gave me this ruler. It's It's got to be the right ruler. And your son, who's now married and has children, you know, a grandma, turns around and says, well, look, I went to Bunnings and I got two separate rulers, one made in England, one made in America, another one made in China for that matter, and I put them against your ruler and all three of them are different. What What's going on? You would say, oh, well, the doctor gave me a ruler that was not valid. It didn't actually do what it says it would. Now, what if I was to say to you that over the last 30 or so years, doctors have been using a ruler called the DSM that is now shown to be really very, very off the mark. 
Now, you've heard this here before for many years, and we've used the words of it's a, there's a game changer going on, there's a paradigm change going on, and neuroscience is involved. Now, one of the key areas it's involved in is in this condition called ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And really, many people, unfortunately, due to our professional ruling that because we've got a drug that can control it, think it's a disease. Reasonable. However, it never has been, never will be. It's actually four sets of symptoms and with variations of attention deficit, meaning you can't concentrate. And by the way, if you're listening to this and having a cup of coffee and want to go out, it doesn't mean it, it's, you've got attention deficit. It means I'm boring. <laughs> and then it's my problem, not yours, because attention depends on a relationship. And so if you've got an attention deficit child, you also got to think, am I the parent who's not sort of quite interesting enough? <laughs> On the other end is the behaviour of hyperactivity, which means that they're sort of up the wall, tearing plants around, and I've had this in my consulting room, so I sympathise. But I also know that it happens in many other conditions than so-called ADHD. One of the most common, actually, is being where there's been a stress and an overwhelming blow to the child's ego or competence or esteem, and they're actually in a state of what's called relational trauma. Now, this is an interesting word that came into usage over 15 years ago, but it has been increasingly backed by scans that says that a child who's experienced these life blows, you know, after divorce, after serious illness in the family, God forbid, a death in the family, these relationship experiences for a child are just too much. They're overwhelming. And the child's brain experiences a relational trauma much like a soldier's brain on the battlefield. And this is the real game changer, that now we know that children who go through these relationship issues go through brain changes that create problems in their focus of attention, concentration, not to mention their moods and feelings, but also their behaviour. And so where does all this lead to? It's actually an editorial in this month, February's Medical Journal of Australia, a very respected journal, with the title of the Diagnostic Validity of Mental Health Diagnosis in Children, which means, is the ruler that is being used actually measuring what it says it will measure? And this article highlights the number of biases, that is, the distortions in the instrument that we have been using for over 30 years and comes out with great caution. Now, I have to pass on the caution, just like uh, Ms. Medic did. If you're having treatment for your children, please continue with whatever is going on. This is not to undermine your confidence or your trust in whoever's treating your child and your family. But for you to become aware, to even think of the possibility that the ruler that we as doctors have been using for 30 years is no longer valid. This happens though, right? This happens as we learn more and the rule is constantly changing in medicine. It, you know, it's not fixed. Um, new treatments, new there's new developments. This is absolutely right. However, 
In physical medicine, it's sometimes easier. A classic case, if anyone knows the name of Barry Marshall, he happens to be a West Australian who is regarded as a crackpot because he suggested that peptic ulcers were actually caused by infection of a bacteria, not, as I was trained, from excessive hydrochloric acid, hence peptic ulcer, in the gut, in the uh, stomach and duodenum. He dared to suggest that people who were doing surgery were in effect unethical if not doing malpractice because he was convinced that there were bugs that were causing these ulcers. People said, oh, well, he's a bit of a nutter from West Australia. The short of the story is he ended up winning the Nobel Prize because he ingested the bacteria, did a gastroscope, proved that he himself got the ulcers, took antibiotics and he was cured. That is the game changer in physical medicine. Mm. Now we've got the same game change that has happened over 15 years. Why? Because we've got brain scans that were never available. And so now we do have physical evidence of infants' and children's brains because they're non-invasive. Prior to the 2010 or so, we didn't have enough evidence, and now we do. And this is the game changer that we come out with more confidence saying that the old diagnostic categories have really got to be looked at again if we're going to continue practicing ethical medicine with children. And ADHD being the commonest disorder presenting to child psychiatrists and paediatricians and general practice is often treated, unfortunately, as a first line of treatment with medication. Mm. That really now has to be revised in terms of how the question would be well what are you going to do well now we have to ask a history a detailed story of the child's pregnancy birth early life to see if there's historical markers for what this relational and developmental trauma is about because that produces exactly the same symptoms of adhd and does that mean they would be managed in different ways now that is where it gets really crucial as we talked with the uh, off-the-shelf non-medicines or supplementary, there are benefits and side effects. The same thing with the most commonly used drug, Ritalin. It's an amphetamine product. For those who are benefiting, well done. But many, it merely controls the symptom and starts to create side effects, appetite suppression, sleep disorder in due course, some potential addiction to it or at least withdrawal symptoms and possibly growth retardation as well. So if a child doesn't have uh, an ADHD that's treatable with um, Ritalin or like drugs and indeed has another condition, you've done two disservices. Mm -hmm. One is introduce the drug with serious side effects. Two, you've missed the real diagnosis and the appropriate treatment for that. And now there's a whole spectrum of treatments for relational traumas, yes. Right. So, so what you're essentially saying is ADHD diagnosis may actually be more to do with some early childhood trauma, this trauma that's yes. happened in the either before they're even born yeah. um, and throughout their early days as in infancy. infancy. And yeah. that type of situation won't respond to our standard treatment for ADHD well, or unlikely it, it to. It may respond, but then there's complications and in the long term it's not going to treat the real cause. The underlying problem. The underlying problem. And these relational and development traumas are what are called precursors 
to these symptoms. Unless you find out if these precursors have occurred, you haven't really done the right thing by the child or their family. Fascinating. Mm. All right. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. We've been talking about all sorts of things, diagnoses of ADHD and diagnoses of American presidents and <laughs> complementary medicines, all sorts of things. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a, a change of approach now and talk about a new initiative of the Victorian government to get doctors in secondary schools. So this is really quite interesting and I was very surprised that I hadn't heard more about this given that I am a general practitioner. Um, But what is being rolled out currently is the first stage of these Doctors in Secondary Schools program which is going to involve 100 Victorian government secondary schools in disadvantaged areas having an adolescent health trained GP attend up to once a week to provide on-site medical advice and health care to the students of that school. Now this is going to be rolled out in stages 20 schools I believe are starting from term one this year. There'll be another 40 schools commencing from term three this year and another 40 schools commencing from term one in 2018 so i guess this is all this i mean the objectives here are are, are great it's about increasing access to general practice and to getting good health care we know that this part of the population the adolescent community are um are probably those that are seen the least in terms and have a significant burden of mental health problems but also some important healthcare needs in terms of um, reproductive um, control and those sorts of things so I think it I think it's interesting that we're that this is coming about but I look I do have some questions though I I, I really I feel like this is um I'm not convinced, I guess, that this is the right way to go about it. Um, This isn't going to be a cheap endeavour. In fact, they're quoting $43.8 million this is going to cost because obviously there's some significant infrastructure that would be required to have a general practice be able to occur on site in each of these secondary schools. Could I just ask, Dr Medic, you're saying this is the first that you've heard of this sort of rollout uh, and there's been no leaflets and AMA meetings and Vic uh, Health meetings that you've been invited to at least. No, I haven't. And look, I think that um, something that I did read was that the, the College of General Practitioners and the AMA were very late to be consulted about this. It seemed to sort of already be underway before that consultation process happened. I believe it has now happened. Um, But I think it... it, Look, I guess it's just a... um, Look, I think it's great that we are putting some emphasis and some money into primary health because we know that's important. Mm. We know that primary health is terribly underfunded. But I just wonder whether this is the right way to go about it Um, because, look, I think it's really important to have young people or, or, or community members in general linked in with their local GP. And I worry that this is a temporary measure where there will be a 
a short term sort of link with the GPs that that arrive that rock up to the school um, it's not clear whether it's going to be the same one every week well that's the immediate question that comes to my mind you being a gp can you imagine your relationship with this school-based gp of who's going to be in charge of the adolescent who rocks up at school but is your patient yeah will you expect a call from the uh, school-based gp and ask for history of you know, to fax or, or email or to... And this is, yeah, this is part of the difficulty. And because the other thing is that these are young people um, who will be able to access care without their, necessarily their parental consent, which is, this is okay because we do know that young people need to take a responsibility from for their own health, that they can access, teenagers can access their own Medicare card or have their Medicare um, history not need to be passed on to their to their parents because they if they meet the uh, standards of the mature minor however you do worry about things like important history not being passed on from the the regular general practitioner you know often the parents and those sorts of things and just that lack of continuity if it's a different gp coming every week or where to is this program going to go on forever and where to do we then link these kids back in with their general practice positive sorry the positive part about it is they are trying to make sure that the gps that attend each of these schools are from the local community so then conceivably you can then go back and see that general that general practitioner in the clinic where they came from Now, the criterion of a mature minor, clearly that is a recognition that someone between the age of 12 and 18 shouldn't all be treated as the same way because by 18 they're not minors anymore, in fact adults, but 12-year-olds are clearly just out of childhood. Mm -hmm. Now, who's going to be the arbiter of that 12, 13, 14-year-old, say, uh, from two, three, that intermediate adolescent, Mm. if they're mature enough to keep private things from their their regular GP, which mother and father or perhaps their guardians would imagine is under their authority, and this new GP who's suddenly sprung at his school and says, well, you know, you're mature enough, I'll keep everything confidential between us. Isn't this a setup for a parallel system of medical care? Well, I guess that's the concern, but the, or one concern. But I, I, I figure that this is what this is really trying to do is tap into those kids that aren't seeing their regular GP. So mm-hmm. it's it's probably trying to pick up those kids that otherwise don't go and see a doctor that don't discuss some of their mental health needs and the presence of having these doctors on campus means that they will see a doctor when they otherwise wouldn't have and in which case that's fantastic like we we know that this stuff is really important uh, i get the other questions i have about it is how are they going to set up bookings mm. how are they going to ensure confidentiality in terms of um, other students seeing people attend um I worry about that. I wonder how that's actually going to work. Could I just pick up on that? Because I, in my practice with adolescents, actually have requests from parents whether they could bring their youngster after school or before school, 
lest they walk out of a class for a medical appointment. And then, of course, their classmates ask, where are you going? What for? And then they have to, in my situation, say, I'm actually going to a mental health professional or something to do with my worries. But here in a school, it's actually on campus. Mm. So are all appointments are likely to be at lunchtime? or during class time, or before or after, because the stigmatization, the bullying, the potential force being singled out yeah. is just such a worry. Yeah, I, I think that is a concern. But I guess maybe on the flip side, we can talk about how we can normalise you know, mental health problems and mm-hmm. the, how important that is. So Obviously, I think this would need to be done with very good education to all of the students on sort of a more more of a school based level about how important that stuff is and if it if this happens within that context, then I can see it being very you know a, a very good mm-hmm. step forward this This has been trialed so there was a a, a secondary school that has been trialing this and it, and has been reporting very good outcomes and um one thing I did read was the principal of the school involved with the trial was saying, uh, in particular at that school, there were very young young GPs, so GP registrars present, and even um, they saw them as a very good role models as well. So it's kind of got almost another flavour to it that you don't mm. necessarily immediately pick up on, and that is just having um, young people demonstrating um what it's like to you know have a have an important job and but be linked in with their compute their community which can be very powerful as well so is that right that this would be the gp in the school becomes a role model of what it's like to be young but already a professional i think and so yeah sort of create an inspiration. A sort of a mentorship as well i guess uh-huh. in, in that sort of that sort of effect as well which is really interesting so look i think it's very much a watch this space because i look i have got a few questions but i'm intrigued and mm-hmm. um it might be helpful i'll see if we can get someone in in a future show that perhaps is working in the schools to tell us a bit how it's actually going could i put you on the spot and say tomorrow morning you get a phone call from your local school and say, we're starting this clinic in the third term. Could you please be our GP? What would you say? I would say yes. Wow. I, I must admit I would because I'm intrigued enough to see how this is <laughs> okay. actually goes. Right. Uh, look, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the nuts and bolts issues in terms of the infrastructure you know, keeping medical records confidential on site, um, the computer systems that are involved with that um, and the equipment and those sorts of requirements and, you know, whether there might have been a better way, could they have just had a visiting GP from the local clinics give lots of education and Mm. talks and then offer, you know, a walk-in clinic an afternoon a week at the local general practice. That sort of... I wonder if that wouldn't have been a more... A cost-effective way of getting some of the same uh, results or uh, and achieving the same objectives. But look, I am intrigued, so mm. I will I will come back to you on this. Fascinating development. Mm. Mm. All right, so that's about it for us. We have managed to fill in the hour, the two of us, Malice. I'm impressed. <laughs> I've been a real pleasure to be your co-pilot, and well done. And oh. to Kent also, thank you for supporting us through Absolutely. all this. 
Absolutely. Two of the best co-pilots around. Uh, we have been Radiotherapy. You're listening to Triple R. It has just gone 11 o'clock. We will hand over now to the scientists with Einstein and Gogo. Have a wonderful Sunday. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again... Ugh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R.